0: Right, so <clears throat> remain standing and let's recite our verse for the month. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 2, 13. Awesome. You can go ahead and be seated. So uh, let me begin here by saying as a re- uh, reminder, next week is Easter Sunday. Yes. So. Remember we will be having an Easter egg hunt for the kiddos at 3.30 right before service and no nursery during service because we want everybody to be able to be in service together. So you guys now have seven days to invite everyone you know and have ever met in your entire life. That's right. Send thousands and thousands of invitations worldwide. No, I'm kidding. Uh, If there are people here in town that you know, that you've been praying for. Ideally, these would be people who are in your oikos that you've been praying for already. This is a great opportunity for you to invite them to come to church. Uh, Like I said last week, Easter Sunday is the one Sunday of the year that people are most likely to accept an invitation to church. So, there's invitations in the back. Uh, Take some with you. Hopefully, this past week, you've been handing them out. Um, I've invited like 20-something people already. So, that's not a humble brag, okay? That's, that's leading by example, all right? Not do as I do and also as I say, okay? So, take a stack of those, um, whatever opportunity you have, you know, keep them in your pocket or your purse, whatever, and as you're having conversations with people, you could be at the grocery store and just talking and hand an invite. It's, it's that simple. So, take some of those with you. Um, next, uh, the only other... Um, uh, uh, housekeeping item, is today we have welcoming uh, our newest church member today, Leyland Kiefer. Yes, he is here. If you haven't met the little guy, uh, go back there and, uh, and meet him afterwards. He is adorable. Um, we have a meal train that you guys can sign up for, um, and uh, uh, please do that, and, and let's bless the Kiefer's with uh, some meals. Okay, so... In April of 2017, five years ago, the universe was gifted one of the most hilarious scandals in the history of scandals. And the reason why I say that it's hilarious is because this particular scandal pretty much only affected the richest and most privileged members of our society. When a normal person like us gets scammed, that's very tragic, very sad. Uh, but when a bunch of rich brats get scammed simply because of their being rich brats, I'm sorry, but you kind of have to laugh, right? A little bit. Now, they are people, and God loves them, and God died for them too. Okay? I don't want that to get lost in this, but sometimes it is a little bit humorous to see a person's privileged pride come back to bite them. In the months leading up to April 2017, an unprecedented marketing campaign took place on social media, mainly on Instagram, touting the greatest luxury music festival of all time, which would take place on a private island in the Bahamas. It promised, quote, a place where the tropical sun shines all day and our celebrations ignite the night, This is an invitation to unplug, connect with something deeper, and hunt for something bigger. That something bigger was basically a tropical Coachella, complete with luxury villas, gourmet dining, and the chance to party on a private island with celebrities, social media influencers, and models. Some of the ticket packages included, offered yachts, offered personal meals cooked in front of you by famous chefs, VIP access to some of the band members, and excursions around this island. This event was set to be headlined by Blink-182 and included artists like Major Lazer, Migos, and Lil Yachty. To say that the ads went viral would be an understatement. Online, it was on fire. So, she got it, so nearly 5,000 people purchased tickets, some of which cost $100,000 a piece. That's right, $100,000 for a music festival. And so all the very rich and privileged people who could afford to do so pulled out their phones, and began to brag to their millions and millions of followers that they would be attending this once-in-a-lifetime event, and they would be vlogging the entire experience to all of the jealous masses. And so they boarded their planes, turned on their live streams, fired up their Instagram stories, and arrived at the Bahamian island of Great Exuma, famously touted to have been owned by Pablo Escobar himself. And when they arrived, full of their giddy, privileged excitement, they were greeted by what has rightly been called the greatest disaster in all of music festival history. The much-anticipated fire festival turned out to be a dumpster fire. Exactly zero of the promised amenities were present. All of the bands that were scheduled had pulled out at the last minute before the festival even began. There were no partying celebrities, no frolicking models, and most notably, none of the luxury accommodations. Instead, there were tractor trailers filled with unassembled infrastructure and a number of mostly assembled FEMA disaster relief tents most of which had just bare mattresses that had been soaked in the previous day's rain. The promised gourmet dining prepared by famous chefs turned out to be the most pathetic cheese sandwiches you have ever seen in your entire life. Two pieces of white bread, one sad slice of cheese, one slice of tomato, and a sad little piece of lettuce. And so the people panicked. Wouldn't you, if you were in that situation, if you spent upwards of $100,000 to be present at this event, and instead you were dropped off on a deserted island with a disaster relief tent, wouldn't you freak out? One uh, attendee later said that instead of being greeted by a concierge, as they were expected, they showed up and just made their way down to the beach, where instead of being at cabanas, they were at these tents, and that people were fighting over the tents because there weren't enough tents for the people that were even there. One person, another uh, attendee later said, was so angry that she set her tent on fire. Twitter was set ablaze with pictures and first-hand accounts of this scam. Normal people, who could never possibly afford to attend this exclusive VIP party, watched the whole thing with popcorn and laughed and laughed and laughed. Billy McFarland, the organizer of this disaster, ended up being sentenced to six years in prison for fraud. In this event, is the subject of two documentaries on Hulu and Netflix, respectively. If you haven't watched them, be prepared to be amazed, my friends. That was the ill-fated fire festival of 2017. Now, I want you to take that visual, that picture, and contrast it with one that is much more ubiquitous in the American experience. I have been told by many people, and in fact, much to my dismay have personally experienced in the past that there are people who actually get this camp on purpose <laughs> there are people who by their own decision and will go out into the wilderness where there are no amenities and then these people what they do is they set up tents like the fema disaster relief tents they set up their own tents out in the wilderness and then they sleep on the ground sometimes this takes place even when it is pouring rain and their dwelling places also get soaked. I have, like I said, I've personally experienced this in the past where myself and a group of others went out to go camping and set up tents and I slept next to another stinky junior high boy and uh, we slept on the ground in sleeping bags. We didn't even have a mattress. It was just on the ground. I don't understand why people do this on purpose. If I get a week off, any time off, why would I purposely go somewhere less comfortable than my own house? Doesn't make any sense. Why would I purposely sleep somewhere that doesn't even begin to compare to my luxurious mattress in my bedroom? That to me does not sound relaxing. But to some people, perhaps even to some of you people, it sounds wonderful to purposely go camping, unplug from society, and for a short amount of time live off the land, eat whatever you catch, provide for yourselves, be in the peace and quiet. Because the difference between these two scenarios is that when you camp on purpose, you know that you're not at home. Your your perspective is much different. It's not a surprise to you when you're staying in that tent. When you show up and you're expecting to stay in a luxury cabana, and what you have is a tent, you're going to freak out. You're going to say, what's going on here? This is not what I was promised. There's something here that's missing. But when you camp on purpose and you bring that tent with you and you know that it's in the back of the truck and then you're the one that sets it up yourself, there's no shock there. This is exactly what you expected. And you know that you're only going to be there for a short time. You know that waiting back at home for you is a dwelling that is so much better, a mattress that is so much more comfortable, a refrigerator stocked with every food that you could ever need that you don't have to fish for yourself. You know that you are out there because you have the freedom to be out there because you want to be. You're not there because you have to be. When the tent is where you're forced to be, you rightly long for a better place. Today, we are going to be looking at the next feast in this series of feasts that we've been going through in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 23. Today, we'll be looking at the feast of booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. As we've been going through this series called Let's Eat, we've been looking at all the ways that the Feast of the Old Testament point us forward as much as they point us backward. That in their original context, they were there to remind the people of Israel about what God had done for them. But they were also going to be proclamations of what God was going to do for them in the future. And for us as believers, when we take these things and we frame them in the context of the gospel, what we find here are incredible foreshadowings to what Jesus would do in the New Testament, and even foreshadowings to what he is still yet to do in his second coming. So, we'll be looking at Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 through 44. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days, is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation, and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation, for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your free will offerings which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land... You shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feast of the Lord. Now keep your finger there, and we're also going to look in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Verses 13 through 17, which is a parallel passage to this one. Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 17. You shall keep the feast of booths seven days, when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your winepress. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose at the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given to you. So, the Feast of Booths. Some of your translations might say the Feast of Tabernacles. So let's set up some background here. Why was this something that God commanded the Israelites to celebrate? Well, we find in these passages that God commanded them to erected these temporary dwellings, these tents, if you will, these small booths made of boughs of leaves and plants, in order to commemorate the way that God had miraculously delivered them from bondage in Egypt. And then after He delivered them from bondage, as they were dwelling in the wilderness, how He miraculously provided for every need that they had in the desert. There in the desert we read in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers that for 40 years as the Israelites traveled, their clothes never wore out. Their shoes never wore out. Every one of the resources that they could possibly need was provided for them. Manna from heaven, water coming out of a rock. Everything that they needed, the Lord provided And it says here that this is a reminder of how God gave them temporary dwellings, booths, tents, to live in. They were freed from slavery, and then they went on a 40-year camping trip where God brought everything that they could possibly need to them. And so, in celebrating this feast, there were three main symbols. The booths, or, or tabernacles, Water and light. If you were here with us at Christmas, you remember that we studied the Feast of Booths, and so hopefully some of these things will be familiar to you. The booths had significance because they were a tangible reminder of their freedom from slavery in Egypt. God provided for them the elements for these temporary t- tents while the Israelites dwelled in the desert. And so as they slept under the coverings of these tents, they could say, I may be living in a tent in the desert, but I am free from bondage. And in this desert, God has sheltered me. I may be forced to be on a camping trip right now. Not where I'd like to be. <laughs> I am camping, but I'm not in slavery anymore. Where I am now is a whole lot better than where I used to be. Where I am now is a reminder of the miraculous freedom that God has given me. The second element was one of water. And in the Feast of Booths on the seventh day, there was a water ceremony. And this consisted partly of the high priest pouring water on the altar. And the water was a reminder of something that God had done in the desert as well. The water commemorated how God provided for the Israelites all the water that they needed for 40 years in the desert. God gave them rainwater for crops. God gave them drinking water for themselves and for their families and for their livestock. Again, water that came out of a rock. When the Israelites were thirsty and they're looking around in the middle of a desert and there's nowhere to get water and they're thirsty and they need something to drink, they cry out to God. And God says to Moses, Go over to this rock, hit it with your staff, and water will come out of it. Imagine that picture, right? Right? A rock, and out comes a fountain of perfect, clean water. And then the third element of the Feast of Booths that the Israelites would celebrate is in the lighting of the temple. This occurred on the first night of the feast. And so in the temple, there were these giant candelabras, 75 feet high, filled with pitchers of oil. And when they were lit, they would gloriously light the entire temple. And that was a reminder of their experience in the desert. The way that God led the Israelites by night as a pillar of fire. He literally was fire. And during the day, as a pillar of smoke. God, in his embodiment, is fire. And so, they would celebrate the fire festival. Couldn't, couldn't pass up that opportunity, sorry. So, the Feast of Booths. Is an appointed time. All of these are appointed times that God has given. We talked about how each of these things are reminders. Set schedules in their calendar to cause them to call to memory what God has accomplished, what God has done. And these are appointed reminders for the people to look forward to the ways that God is going to continue to work. And so God set them this time as a reminder for all that he had done to free them and bring them into the promised land. So let's take a little bit of a deeper dive to see what more there is for them and what more there is for us. If you take notes, here is point number one. The world promises the promised land, but delivers tents. Jesus joins us in the tents and purchases our ticket to the promised land. Say that again because I know it's a bit wordy. The world promises us the promised land but delivers us tents. Jesus joins us in the tents and purchases our tickets to the promised land. Think for a moment about the marketing campaign of the Fire Festival. Did anybody watch the doc- documentaries on the Fire Festival? Okay, a number of you guys. Um, The marketing campaign was flashy and impressive, full of music and lights and action. It was meant to be this incredible visual experience promising all the best of paradise. But then what was actually delivered as the real product? All these people are are seeing the videos on social media, right? They're clicking share. They're seeing all the celebrities that are sharing this. All of the the famous influencers that are saying, oh my gosh, this is going to be the most amazing thing ever. This is going to be the greatest music festival in the history of music festivals. So-and-so is going to be there, and -and so-and-so is going to be there, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and look at all this cool stuff. But then, what was actually the real product that was given? When they arrived, there was nothing. Tractor trailers with half-constructed things, FEMA disaster tents, and cheese sandwiches. It was an absolute disaster. It was a fraud. It was a scam. It was one of the greatest bait-and-switch techniques of history. Which is why Billy McFarlane was sentenced to six years in jail. You've paid all of this money, thousands and thousands of dollars, and then you show up to an absolute disaster. What was promised versus what was actually given. I submit to you that this is exactly what happens with temptation. The world and all of its promises, the American dream, the Western ideal, the enemy promises us something amazing. He promises us the best life now. The devil, like Billy McFarland, makes promises that he cannot possibly deliver on. Think about the garden, Genesis 3. He sees Adam and Eve hanging out there by the tree. And they're looking at the fruit. And the serpent, more crafty than any other animal, he, he looks at Adam and Eve and he says, You know what will happen if you eat this fruit? Doesn't it look great? See, God is holding out on you. God doesn't want the best for you. If you eat this fruit, you will have what is best. You will be like God. You will have Paradise, you will have your own world that you can control. It will be awesome. It will be a festival full of all the things that paradise could possibly offer. And so Adam and Eve pay the highest possible price, their own lives, and they bite into that fruit. And what do they get? FEMA tents. Cheese sandwiches. Sandwiches they immediately realize, immediately realize that the promise was empty. These are the same things that are thrown at us every single moment by all the marketing that we see in movies, in music, in television, telling us, YOLO, you only get one life. Make the most of it. Buy this, experience that. This is all you have, this life and all that it offers. This is as good as it gets. Make the most of every moment. Do whatever makes you happy. Follow your heart. Look within yourself. Be your true you. Whatever you have to do to to take every drop of this life, do it. And don't let anybody stop you because this is as good as it gets. And what happens when we chase that? We give ourselves to it. We we follow after the marketing scheme. And what do we get in return? Nothing. We we get emptiness. Even if we get the things that we wanted, the successes that we wanted. Even if we, we follow that fantasy, whatever that fantasy might be, even if we get whatever that fantasy is, we experience it, and what do we find in the middle of that fantasy? a FEMA disaster tent, brokenness, emptiness. My friends, if this life is all we have, it is a fire festival disaster indeed. But the Feast of Booths is a reminder to us. It's a reminder that there is so much more. The Feast of Booths was a reminder to the Israelites as they're living in those temporary dwellings, this is not your home. This is not where you are meant to be for all time. This is not your permanent dwelling. And even more, God himself joins us in the temporary dwelling. God himself joins the people in the middle of the disaster on the beach on the island of Great Exuma. In my quiet time over the last couple of weeks, I've been going through... Uh, the book of Exodus and Leviticus. And in those books, we have these very, very detailed accounts of the construction of the tabernacle. Everything about it, down to its threads that it would be used, the dimensions, how everything was to be put together, the tabernacle. When this was taking place, when God commanded the Israelites to do this, The tabernacle in which the fullness of God's presence dwelled was what? Anyone? A tent. It was a tent. It was an incredibly elaborate tent. But it was a tent, nonetheless. It was something that had to be put up and taken down and over and over repeated as the Israelites moved about in the wilderness. At that point, the temple had not yet been built. The temple that would be the dwelling place of God's presence. But even then, let's be honest, even the temple in all of of its magnificence, and all of its glory, the temple, compared to the throne room of heaven, is a tent. It's a dump. Compared to the throne room of heaven, even the magnificent temple is a dump for the place for God to have His presence dwell. I want you to look at what it says in Exodus chapter 29. Exodus 29 verses 42 through 46. Eli, do I have that up there? Exodus 29? I do? Okay. Exodus 29 verses 42 through 46. It says, It shall be a regular burnt offering to the Lord throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. He's talking about the tent of meeting. He's talking about the tabernacle. This is the tent, which God says, this is where my presence is going to be. It says, there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priest. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their god and they shall know that I am the Lord their god who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them I am the Lord their god you see the feast of booths is a reminder of the heart of the god that we serve it is a picture of what he is like It is a picture of His grace. It calls to mind, it makes us think of what kind of God is this that we serve? We serve the kind of God who would step out of His perfect throne room in heaven and bring the fullness of His presence into a tent. A tent. So that, He says, He can dwell among His beloved people. I will take the fullness of all that I am and I will meet you here in the tent out in the wilderness okay in the disaster relief tents where you're all dwelling on the island of Exuma I will be in a tent with you and I'll go with you every step wherever I lead you I'm gonna be right there with you you will always be able to meet me right here at the entrance of this tent You will always know that my presence is among you. That's, that's incredible. It's an incredible picture of the heart of God, a God who will meet us right there. That's what he did for the Israelites. And then he took it a step further. If that wasn't enough, if it wasn't enough for God to have his fullness of his presence dwelling in a tent, in a pillar of fire, literally it says that the fire would be there. If that wasn't enough, we see this in John 1. John chapter 1, verse 14, says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is a God who it wasn't enough for him to just dwell in a tent. He then took on the tent of our broken flesh and lived as one of us to then die for all of us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the Greek, literally the phrasing in the Greek in John 1:14 says the word became flesh and built his his booth. That's, that's how it reads in the Greek. The word became flesh and built his booth among us. Jesus built his tent. He took on the FEMA disaster tent and he set up shop right among the people in the disaster of the fire festival. Becoming one of us. Jesus himself becomes our spiritual covering. We do not have to weep because we have no hope. We rejoice because Jesus covers us. And that covering does not come as a result of anything that we have ever done or could ever do. It comes because Jesus himself says, I am the God who will dwell among you. That's amazing. This is the opposite of what the world does. Again, the world offers paradise and then gives us disaster tents. Jesus says, I'm going to meet you there. In the disaster because I got something more for you. I'm gonna set up my tent right among yours because I'm leading you into something amazing. If you remember part of the Feast of Booths was the people celebrating by pouring water on the altar, right? They would pour water on the altar and that water was a, a commemoration uh, of the water in the desert. But that celebration wasn't just about physical water, okay? This, this was a celebration That was about salvation. In Ezekiel 36 25, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and I will cleanse you. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. That water symbolized cleansing from sin. That water symbolized life spiritually. They no longer have to be thirsty, they no longer have to die in the thirst of their flesh. And Jesus said to us in John 7, 37-38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When he's talking to the woman at the well, he says, I give you living water. Whoever drinks the water that I give him will have a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. This is the promise that God gives us. One of the things that um, the attendees of the fire Festival said was that they showed up and there was pallets of bottled water. Hadn't even been opened yet. And so at one point, Billy McFarlane himself stood on top of the pallets and is throwing bottles of water at people. And people are like, this is it? This is what I paid $40,000 for? Some dude who's a fraud throwing bottles of water at me? You nuts? Jesus, on the other hand, says, I'm going to meet you there in the middle of the disaster, and I will be the water that you need. I will give you everything that you thirst for. I will cleanse you with the water of the word, and I will quench your thirst. And then finally, part of the uh, celebration in the Feast of Booths was in lighting the temple with the candelabras. And they rejoiced because the light of the Lord was shining on their darkness, making it brand new. They didn't have to live in darkness anymore. They had the pillar of fire lighting their every night. And we have the light of the world. John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So when Jesus was born, when the Word became flesh, when He made His booth among us, the light, the water, began to flow in the earth. And so every year, the people set up tents to celebrate their freedom, to celebrate the God that dwelt among them in the wilderness. And then He brought them into the promised land. And there's a promise here for us as well. One day, we know that Jesus is going to come back again. You see, because he made his temporary dwelling among us once before. He built his tent. He built his booth. But one day, Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, he will be setting up his eternal kingdom here on earth. That is the future fulfillment that we have to look forward to in the Feast of Booths. He is going to come back and he's going to replace all of the temporary tents with perfect, flawless, eternal dwellings. Every brokenness will be replaced. Billy McFarlane promised the people luxury and he gave them slices of cheese on bread. That was the fullness of what he actually offered. But when we celebrate together, when we sit down and we take of the Lord's Supper, and it's this little snack that doesn't satisfy, right? It is a bite of bread and a sip of juice. That will not fill any of us. But it's not meant to fill us. It's meant to call us to remember who we are talking to. That tiny little snack of the Lord's Supper becomes a promise, a promise of what is to come. We purposely eat these little morsels that can't possibly fill us because we know that one day we're going to feast forever at the true Lord's Supper, the wedding feast of the Lamb. So he meets us in the disaster tents and he gives us a little snack and he says, listen, I'm giving you something to look forward to and I'm actually going to deliver on the promise. I'm actually going to give you what I say I'm going to give you. I'm not going to give you some flashy marketing campaign that fills you with hope and then meets you in emptiness. No, I'm going to give you truth, and I'm going to demonstrate it by becoming one of you, living among you, paying the price that you could never pay, canceling your debt, and giving you a ticket to the promised land. That leads us to our second point. The Feast of Booths causes us to remember that we've been set free. The Feast of Booths causes us to remember well, that we've been set free. There is um, a detail that I think is so cool about the Feast of Booths that I did not notice last time we studied it. Like I said, we, uh, we looked at the Feast of Booths in December this past, uh, this past year as we were going through uh, looking at Nehemiah And how in that passage, the people in Nehemiah, uh, they've finished constructing the the wall, and then they find written in the law, the Feast of Booths, and they celebrate that together. So we did that study on the Feast of Booths, and there was a detail that I missed. That as I was studying this week, I'm thinking to myself, you know, gosh, we just studied the Feast of Booths like four months ago. I don't want to just stand up here and give the people a rerun. We've seen this episode. Fast forward. And then the Lord brought something that was just amazing. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Um, In Deuteronomy chapter 31, what we have is Moses handing over the leadership of Israel to Joshua. he's, He's passing on the reins, right? And as he's doing so, he's giving him certain commands about how the people are to be led and what kinds of things have to be done. And he references something that, uh, that was written about earlier in Deuteronomy and that we're going to get to here in a moment. But let's look at Deuteronomy 31 and look at verses 9 through 13. It says, Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of sons of levi who carried the ark of the covenant of the lord unto all the elders of israel and moses commanded them at the end of every seven years at the set time in the year of release at the feast of booths when all israel comes to be to appear before the lord your god at the place that he will choose you shall read this law before all israel in their hearing Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not yet known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So we have this event that takes place Every seven years. And at this event that takes place, all of Israel is to gather. Men, women, and children, visitors, as we'll see in a passage here in a moment. Every member of the household, which includes servants as well, gather. And and what happens here is that they hear the word of the law. They're assembled and they learn to fear. They hear the preaching of the good news. They hear the good gospel of the Father. And when does this take place? It takes place at the Feast of Booths. Every seven years. Every seven years. It says, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release. What is the year of release, you might ask? Well, one of the things that God set up in the calendar of the Israelites, was that not only was there to be a Sabbath every seven days, there was also to be a Sabbath year every seven years. And every seven years in that Sabbath year, the people would stop their farms and they would release their resources to the poor, to the hungry, They would provide for each other. God promised that he would give bountiful harvest in the years before so that in that seventh year, in that year of release, the people could rest. The land could rest. And as another part of that process, what we have in the year of release is the releasing of indentured servitude. So those people who had been indentured servants, what that means is if there was a debt that you could not pay, you would work that debt for seven years. You would put yourself in service. You would make yourself someone's slave for seven years in order to pay that debt. And so then what would happen in that seventh year, the year of release, you would be released from that debt. Remember uh, the story of Jacob, right? Jacob sees Rachel, and he says, I really want to marry this girl. And what does Laban tell him? Okay, work for me for seven years. Seven years work for me, that'll pay off the debt of the dowry. That'll pay the bride price. And so Jacob works for seven years. And then that whole situation where he gets fooled, and he gets Leah instead, and he's like, whoa, 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 you cheated me. I wanted to marry Rachel, I woke up with Leah, and what does Laban say? He says, all right, work for me another seven years. This was the cycle. This was the debt cycle that was built in to uh, the calendar of the ancient Israelites. If there's a debt you can't pay, you work it off off over the course of seven, seven years. And so, on the seventh year, the entire household would gather in Jerusalem and, and we, we looked at Deuteronomy 16 earlier. I want to I go back there for a second. Deuteronomy 16. Because here, it, it might seem like it's just describing a feast of the booths again, but, but what's unique about this passage in Deuteronomy 16 is it tells us in more detail who all is there, right? You shall rejoice in your feast. This is 1614. You shall rejoice in your feast. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. Everybody. Bring everybody. Everybody, come on. The whole house. Servants included. We're not leaving anybody at home. Why? Because those indentured servants were going to be celebrating the cancellation of their debt. At the Feast of Booths. Every seven years at the Feast of Booths, the law is read, and the people rejoice, and the Israelites cancel debt. That's incredible. God takes the joy-filled celebration of the year of release. I mean, can you imagine? You've been working for seven years, your debt is now paid off, Your, your debt that you could not pay is canceled, God takes the joy-filled celebration of that year of release, and he purposely schedules it to take place at the Feast of Booths. Anybody seeing how that relates to Jesus? I got a visitor. (laughs) Hey, dude. What's up, man? Give me five. Cool. All right, give her five. Give her five. Yeah. Nice. You gotcha. (laughs) And that is how you trap a baby. So God takes this celebration and he schedules it to be at the Feast of Booths. Are we not seeing how clearly this relates to Jesus? On the day that you celebrate, God is saying, on the day that you celebrate me setting you free from slavery, on the day that you celebrate me dwelling among you in a tent, you also celebrate the freedom from debt that you cannot pay. Jesus is the literal embodiment of the Feast of Booths. Jesus is the one who sets us free from our slavery to sin. Jesus is the one who made his dwelling among us in order to fulfill that mission. Jesus is the one who cancels the debt that we... no longer servants, not your friends. I'm going to elevate you just like the Israelites would do every seven years at the Feast of Booths. They would say to the servants, you're now elevated from servant to friend. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And Jesus is the one who is coming back to dwell among us forever. And at that time, he will make permanent This is what the Feast of Booths reminds us of. So as we close, let's let's make this practical, shall we? The first thing that I want you to do this week, today, starting today and and throughout the, the, the rest of this week, I want you to begin to examine your heart. Examine your heart to see if there is in there any attitude that displays that you're living like this is your home. Are you dissatisfied? Are you living in futility? Perhaps you're stuck on the beach in a FEMA tent, wondering who did this to you. Remember that this is not your home. This is not all that there is. This is temporary. This life is fleeting. At best, we get 70, 80, maybe 90 years, and then this is over. Are you living as if this is the main thing? Or are you living for something beyond? Is your heart set on the now, or is your heart set on what is to be? Let this be a reminder. Let this be an opportunity. Let this be an occasion in which you examine before the Lord, am I focused on right now, living for right now, or am I focused on the paradise that awaits me? Perhaps you have never given your life to Jesus. Perhaps you've never accepted this promise for the very first time. Perhaps this life is all that you've got. If that's the case, then what better time than the Feast of Booths to say, You dwelled among us. Now be my covering forever. Second, if you'd like, turn this into something fun. At some point this week, especially if you have kids at home, build a fort. Build a tent in your house. Watch a movie, hang out, have some snacks. Eli's back there like, yes, let's do this. Build a tent. Celebrate the Feast of Booths. Celebrate having fun together and camp on purpose just because you can. Now, if you don't want to do that this week, then if at any point in the future... You decide to camp on purpose, if you're one of those people that says at some point I'm gonna go camping, well then when you go camping I want you to remember this message. I want this idea, this, this truth about the Feast of Booths to stick in your head and connect directly to every camping trip you ever take for the rest of your life. I want you to make that connection right now so that it never goes away, so that anytime you are camping in the future, Anytime you're out in the wilderness, and anytime you, you lay down to sleep in that tent, and you think to yourself, this is the last place on earth Sway would want to be. Think about the reason that God did that for us. <laughs> Rachel's laughing because she's like, I love camping. <laughs> think about this whenever you camp on purpose. The God who made his dwelling among the people of Israel in the pillar of fire, and the God who built his booth to be the one to pay our price, to cancel our debt, to elevate us from servant to friend. Let that be the God that we celebrate today. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth that you give to us in this feast, that you tabernacle among us, that you meet us in the midst of the disaster, that you give us the fullness of your presence and your promises, that you cause us to look forward to the paradise that you will actually deliver Thank you that you're God who keeps his promises. Lord, I pray that if there's any one of us who has to surrender anything to you, whether that be our lives for the very first time, our hearts, whether that be some secret sin that we're holding on to, whether it be an attitude that keeps us dissatisfied in what you've given us right now, expecting that our best life will be now, whatever it might be, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us in this moment. We need to lay that down. We need to come to a place of surrender. Lord, I pray that whatever it is, you would give us the humility to do so. And Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy, that we'd celebrate, that we'd rejoice at what you've done, how you've set us free, what you've given us. Lord, we we might rejoice And every one of your gifts, that we might thank you with all that we are. God, I pray over the next few moments that we would worship you and that you would do that work in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, we will close in worship.